0: We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles um, and you're not there yet, go ahead and take your Bibles. Welcome to those that are listening online. We're going to continue our our series called Household in in the book of uh, 1 Timothy. Um, And so today we're going to focus in on on verse 8. Uh, So let me draw your, your gaze to that verse. It says, Now we know the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And speaking of the Old Testament law, um, not just in the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but in its entirety. So here you have an issue. The issue is in the church. Um, Paige read that for us this morning. Um, There is an issue of false teachers. Um, they They are teaching things that are speculations. They're based on genealogies. The scripture is not real clear. Paul, who's writing this to Timothy, a, a co-worker in the faith, is not real clear exactly what the false doctrine is. He gives some clues, and I don't think it's important. He would have he placed um, great detail if it was important. What is important is that um, Paul has appointed Timothy. He, he is there instructed um, in, in fact, we find the instructions in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm writing this to you so that if I, if I don't get there, if I don't arrive, you might know how to behave as, a, as, as the church, as a household. And, and it describes the church as the pillar and buttress uh, of truth. But there's a problem. There were false teachers in the church teaching those things that are false. So here's where we're going today as we look at these verses, verses 8 through 11, um, dealing with false teachers and the use of the law. The use of the law. So these speculations were these, these, these false teachings that had to do with genealogies somehow were tied to the Old Testament law, were tied to saying, hey, hey this is what you need to do. Now, this, is, this is what you need to do, but it was extra-biblical. It was extra-biblical, it was outside the law, it was a misuse of the law, it was a laying on, of uh, or a layering on of Scripture that should not be. And Paul says to Timothy, he charges him, he commands him to tell them to stop teaching this false doctrine. Um, do we have a problem with this in the church today? Yes, we do. Do we encounter it within our own church? Absolutely we do. Absolutely. Um, we live in a culture, though, that is very timid um, to, to make certain assertions and certain confrontations. Um, I would say every church is dealing with this. It's not unique to us. It's, it's, it, it, it is pervasive um, through and through our culture and through and through our Christian um, culture that we have in, in America, and I would say in all time, all around, the, the, the Word of God is warning us here. Um, these things are going to come up, and, and we need to dial in. We need to know what exactly is happening here. Um, and what, what Paul is going to instruct Timothy is that, hey, the, the Word of God is useful. It's incredibly useful. Like, there's, there's some practicality to what we're learning this morning, um, it is useful not just in a, a ethereal, spiritual category disconnected from our everyday life. Um, it, it doesn't function that way, um, but rather it's very useful. It's useful in our everyday life, and that's why he's saying that the law is good. So he, so here's where we're going. In order for families to live as a household of God, um, in, in, and um, you will see that Families make up this larger household called the church, the household of God, as households are to live as households. Um, That is a key word in 1 Timothy, is household. In order for families to live as the household of God, and the church to be the living church, or the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth, we must stop false teachers and teach the law of God in accordance with the gospel. So... Here's four points this morning. Here's, here's what we're, we're going to look at. One, false teachers will misuse the Bible. Okay? Paul's going to point that out to us. False teachers will misuse the Bible. Second, false teachers will often misinterpret the law of Moses. They will misinterpret the law of Moses. Um, third, the law is good and in accordance to the gospel. Um, so the two are not opposed. And then, here's the kicker, the one you're waiting for. Um... Okay, number four, how to vote in this fall's election. You say, like, what? Why is that number four on there? Well, we'll get there. And and the Bible does provide some instruction. So hang on. Maybe that's a little teaser to keep you awake and alert and and in there, maybe. Um, uh, But I do think that there's some real practicality in the Scripture, and it gives us direction. So let's dive into the Word of God. False teachers, first, false teachers will misuse the Bible, They'll misuse the Bible. Um, it, it's it's a, a general observation here that false teachers will misuse the scriptures, and when they do, when they misuse them, um, they misuse them according to the scriptures. In other words, they use the scripture. False teachers will take the scripture, and they will misuse according to the scripture. Um, that's what's happening in this passage that Paul is is warning Timothy, and that's what's uh, the statement in verse eight. Is now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, lawfully. Um, in, in a moment we're going to look at how these, these false teachers uh, expressly misuse the, the law of Moses in particular. Um, but let's say about let, let's just talk about the scripture um, in general. How do false teachers misuse the, the scripture? Um, in general? Or how do you know if a pastor or a person is using or handling the word of truth rightly? Um, How does a congregation know if a pastor or a teacher or a small group leader or an individual is handling uh, the word of truth rightly? Two things come to mind. One, um, the teachings of pastors and teachers and small group leaders must be in accord with sound teaching. So Titus, just a few Book's over. Um, it says Titus two one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine or sound teaching. And so you have this word of truth, this doctrine, this sound doctrine. We say, well, where is sound doctrine found? Um, how do we how do we get at sound doctrine? Where did Paul get his the the doctrine that's in? The, the the word of God. Where did it come from? Well, they received it verbally um, from Christ, right? They the apostles received it verbally from Christ. Um, where did he get that from? Where did Jesus get his teaching? Well, he got it from where? Um, he got it from the Old Testament, right? That's when he when he taught. He appealed to what? He appeared appealed to the prophets. He he appealed to the writings. The the psalmist, the, the wisdom literature, he appealed to the law of, of Moses. And so it, So when a teacher is teaching, it has to agree with the, the whole of Scripture, right? It can't be out of line or out of, of sync with um, the whole of, of Scripture. It has to be in line with the whole of Scripture. So, so we make this observation, it has to be in line with the whole of Scripture, And the method, there's a method that comes from this. We talked about this last week, um, and we can see this in Jesus himself in Luke 24, 27. Um, It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so a, a pastor... and Congregations may know that the word of truth is being handled correctly if it's being interpreted according to the method of interpretation by the psalmists and the Old Testament prophets and Christ and the apostles and the prophets who ministered in the earliest days of the church. Um, So it has to agree, sound doctrine agrees with the whole corpus of Scripture and the methodology of understanding it comes out of the methodology taught by scripture. Okay, we can't depart from that. Um, Sometimes people will say, you know, I'm looking for direction in my life, and they, you know, just like the random verse, um, and they, you know, they landed on something, a section about who the greatest is, who's the greatest, you know, like, oh, and then, And then, you know, you go from there. That must be like a fortune cookie kind of interpretation. There's a number of different methods of interpretation. That's a misuse of the Bible. And There's many ways to misuse the Bible. To use it correctly means that your understanding of Scripture agrees with the whole of Scripture. And secondly, the way that you came to discover that is using the same method um, that the apostles, that Jesus, that the prophets that the psalmist, that Moses used to understand the, the word of God itself. So false teachers will misuse the scriptures. They will misuse the Bible. False teachers will often misinterpret the law of Moses. They'll often in, misinterpret the law of Moses. So secondly, um, this is, this is, this is uh, complex so I and we're gonna we're gonna move through this and and there was a fleeting thought as to uh, maybe I need to make this a whole separate series within this series understanding the relationship of the Old Testament to the new and interpreting the the Old Testament and understanding the Old Testament um, but I think if we slowed down on every point like that we would be in first Timothy or any book um, forever and there's a lot of scripture to get through. And so, this is one of those messages where I'm going to point to things like a tour guide, and in trust that you're going to slow down and observe those things. That the Spirit of God's going to work, and that you're going to go to work and you're going to study um, some of those things. But let me be transparent about this: even though there's complexities in Scripture, um, it does not mean that the Scripture is unclear. Um, even though there's complexities, even though it's a, a book that we can dedicate our lifetime or lifetimes to, to understand, it doesn't mean that the scripture is unclear. In fact, with this, this teaching is called the perspicuity of scripture, that the meaning of the, the text um, is, is clear. Um, you're, you were you're going into the book of Esther and um, in your Bible study and and uh, as small groups, um, is it so? The, the the book of Esther starts with um, a particular date, and then there's a second marker. It says in in chapter two, after all these things had come to pass, um, and you know you say, well, that's a marker. There must have been some things that that happened, and there are. Um, there's there's lots of things that happen Knowing like the external, um, what's happening around the book of Esther is incredible to to it it makes Esther even more colorful to know that Darius was defeated by the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon and that between chapters one and two in in the the history of the world that, Ahasuerus is came in chapter 1 with this, like, chip on his shoulder, and he wants to defeat the, the Athenians because they defeated his dad. And so he goes to defeat them. And that's what chapter 1, he's, he's like, he's warming up the, the, the armies and everything to, to say, I, I can do this. I know my dad got defeated, but I can do this. And so he has that big banquet. Well, what happens between chapter 1 and 2, two historically? Well, he actually... He, You probably know this. There was a movie um, in the early 2000s that was made about this particular battle. Ahasuerus was defeated in the battle of uh, Thermopylae, the the movie 300. Now, do you need to know all that external stuff to understand chapters 1 and 2 of Esther and where the book is going? No. Is it helpful? Yes. But sometimes we can get caught up in the external things in Scripture and say, well, we have to know something outside of Scripture in order to know what's in Scripture. We have to know all of this culture to know what's happening. We could do this in the book, even of First Timothy. In fact, there's studies you go to commentaries, many of the commentators will commentate, will spend lengthy periods of time speaking about what's happening culturally in Ephesus so that we can understand what the false doctrine is and thereby build some kind of defense. Do we need to know those things? The answer is no, because they're not in the Bible. We don't need to know those things. Could they be helpful? The answer is possibly. But do we hold them above the Bible? No. The meaning of the text is clear. We can get to it with what's there. We just have to learn how to to study the Bible. So oftentimes, false teachers will will import. They will bring things um, into the text. And here, what we do know um, from this passage in First Timothy is that there are false teachers who are misinterpreting the law of Moses. Um, they are not properly conveying the relationship between the law and the gospel and the progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, they're, they're not, they don't understand the organic development of the promises of God in Abraham and Moses and David leading to their fulfillment in Christ. And, and they are bringing or they're importing um, external issues, and they do not have a correct understanding of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. So, um, they, false teachers will misuse the Bible in general. Um, here in the passage, we see that false teachers will often misinterpret the law of Moses, and that's important. When you're motivating or moving people, um, you generally will make a command. You'll make a law, right? That's, that's how people are moved, by particular commands, by particular laws. And so these, these teachers are going back, and they're misusing the Bible, but they're misusing the commands of God as it relates to the gospel. But here Paul says, here's the third point, the law is good, in, and in accordance with the gospel. Um, look at that, that section. Now the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Okay, so the, the purpose of the law, it's good and in accordance, it fits with the gospel. Who is the law for? Um, the law is for the, the lawless in particular. The law is used to deal with men and women in their sin. And then after this, there is a list. And notice notice the list that's there. He says in the scriptures, For the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, uh, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he's he's referencing, if you pay close attention to these sins, he's saying the law is good. What's the purpose of, of the law? To point out those who do evil, those who do wickedness. If you pay close attention to what Paul lists, Paul lists, you'll see particular violations of the Ten Commandments. So those who strike their mothers and fathers. They violate the fifth commandment. Murderers violate the sixth commandment. Those who are sexually immoral and practice homosexuality violate the seventh commandment. Enslavers or p- people who steal, chattel slavery violates the eighth commandment. Liars and perjurers violate the ninth commandment. You know, the, um, then Paul, um, he, he doesn't mention um, covetousness in particular, but in the summary... He, he gives this phrase, whatever else is contrary uh, to sound doctrine. Uh, so we see that there's that second table of the law um, is, is listed. Um, but, but also the first table. He says in verse 9, the law is not laid down for the, the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly. Ungodly are those who are godless and impious. Um, they are not holy. They, this This violates the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, the second, Paul mentions sinners. Um he mentions sinners. um this this Greek word is often referred to sinners in general. Sometimes it's used to um, in reference to specific, specifically to those who are irreligious and idolatrous. Um, and so in this pattern, I, I think Paul has, Um, in mind the second commandment that forbids idolatry. Uh, Thirdly, he mentions um, the unholy. Um, Again, this can be used generically, um, but it, it has more specific reference to those that lack holiness or impious. Christians are called to do what? To hallow or make holy God's name, to regard it as holy. And those who profane God's name are unholy. So we have the third commandment that's here. And lastly, Paul mentions The profane, the fourth commandment, is to honor the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy. And those who violate this command profane the Lord's day. Uh, So lastly, in this this list, notice that the law here, um, the the law of Moses is mentioned. It's um, it's at least alluded to, um, if not directly referenced. um, And all of these are said to be in accordance to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which Paul had been entrusted. So, so there's a contrast. There, there's, they're going together, but there's a contrast. The law is not the gospel. The law is not the gospel. But the law is not, it's not speculation. It's not for speculation either, it's to deal with particular problems. Um, the law is; it has a particular function. It's for the unrighteous, for the unrighteous, and we know the Bible says, um, "For there is no one who is righteous, not even one." So it addresses all mankind sinners in their sin. So the question is then, in, in this passage, how have these false teachers mishandled the law of Moses? How have they mishandled the law of Moses? In fact, we could even broaden it up and say, well, how has the law of Moses been misused? Because we don't have the answer to that in particular. How has the law of Moses been used in this case in First Timothy? We don't know. But think about this. You're studying um, as a church, and those of you that are, that are at home as well, you're going through the gospel project. We're, we're winging our way through the Old Testament, and, um, and, and that's, you know, that takes a lot of work to study through the Old Testament and to go, okay, now there's this, this long narrative and then there's this poetry and then there's this prophecy. How do I use this? How, what, what do I, how do I handle this? And we, we, so we could ask the question, how has the Old Testament been handled improperly? Through, um, how has the law of Moses been handled improperly through the history of the church, even to this present day? There's many ways, but the most prevalent way is when we cherry pick from God's word. We just dip down and we pick something out of its context. Um, and, and we say, oh, we're going we're gonna to take this. Um, but we leave in the context things that we're not going to take. But this is what we know. To the regenerate heart, everything that God says is sweet and right and good, everything in the Bible is good news. In fact, the whole story of God is the gospel. right? So we don't have a New Testament. That's for us. We're the church. And an Old Testament, well, that's just for Israel. That's actually not what Paul is saying here. He's saying what? What does he say in verse 8? Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's good. How do you use the Old Testament? How do you use the Old Testament? If we're in Christ, here's what we know. Here's what we know from the New Testament. If we are in Christ, in other words, if you and I have come to a place where we've recognized that Jesus is Savior, that he is the, the sinless one, who has given his life for us, and we're trusting in him. In other words, we're we're placing our life, our sin, our sinful life, because we are condemned by God's righteousness, and we're placing our trust in him, and that he was the one that went to the cross to forgive us of our sins. He sacrificed himself in our place. If we are in Christ, if we are trusting in his work on the cross and resurrection, then we have been forgiven thereby we are not under the law. We're not condemned under the law because Christ himself fulfills the law. He he fulfilled it completely. When you look at the Old Testament law, in the the law of Moses, um, there's there's three parts that we have to understand um, when we look at the Old Testament. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? You guys with me? Ten Commandments. We're familiar with the the Ten Commandments. The the Ten Commandments are said to be the moral law. And I think we can agree without much argument that that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, form this foundation. That we would say those are still relevant and still in force. How do we know that? Well, all of them are repeated in the New Testament. They're repeated in the New Testament. So those that are in Christ are forgiven. Why? Because we don't meet the moral standard of God. No one does. There's no one righteous. We're all condemned. But Christ does. He gave his life for us. And so the law has this different purpose now. We're no longer under the law. But Paul, in his instruction to Galatians, and we can look at other places in the New Testament, um, here in Timothy, he says the law is good. And so we look back at that and we say, well, as Christians... If this is God's perfect moral standard, then it's our standard as well. And so we, we live in fear of God in a different way than we lived in fear of God prior to salvation. That fear of God prior to salvation was his punishment. We were being punished. If, if you were brought to Christ, if you were brought to salvation because you were afraid of the wrath of God and spending an eternity in hell, praise God. That's good. You responded in a right way to something that ought to be feared. And and you had a certain fear of God because God's condemnation was on you. But you see, in that moment, too, you also understood his great love in that he gave himself for your rescue. And so now, as a Christian, you fear him differently. You're no longer afraid of his wrath. But rather, you have a desire to please him. And so when we read about the fear of God in the Bible, the fear of God is this this growing desire to please God, right? And so we, we want to live now up to that moral standard. We cannot, we will fail in it, even though we have been renewed. The power of the penalty of sin is broken. Sin is still present, but the law is still good. Right, So, so we, we understand the moral law, but there's all kinds of things beyond the moral law in the Old Testament. Like what, class? I, I know we're at home. So somebody at home, you can just respond to your phone or the TV. Just shout it out. Maybe we'll hear it here. But somebody here, what, what are some of the other things besides the Ten Commandments that are in the Old Testament? Let me hear you. I want to know that you're awake this morning. Come on, what, what else? All the crazy stuff in Leviticus. All the crazy stuff in Leviticus. That's a great answer. Thank you. Because you read through that, and you are like, this is crazy stuff. Why why is it here? It does take a lot of work. When you read Leviticus, you can understand, and if you haven't read that, I encourage you to go there, and you'll you'll understand what what Ben is talking about and what others probably are thinking or, or saying aloud. It's like, what is this? It takes a little work to understand, but there's two other parts to God's law. And what Paul is referring to, there's the ceremonial law. there's the ceremonial law. And there is also the civil law. So Israel was ruled as a nation, and there were rules that God made for that nation to operate ceremonially, so morally, civilly, ceremonially, God, God said, "This is how Israel, you're to live." And they were living under God as king. And, and all of these laws were meant to, when you look at the Old Testament, many of the laws were meant to govern what? The household. And that's huge. And this is, this is where, like, okay, my mind gets to spinning and all the rabbit trails, I can see them moving, like, um, is that this, this idea of Old Testament household law goes directly to families, right? So there's this huge teaching that we could jump into when it comes to the law and how it forms households, which is a key idea that's in this households as families. Because what you had in Israel is you had tribes and they had God. So God, right, his intent when we look at the Old Testament is for households. In fact, there is a warning. There is going to be a king God knew that Israel would want a king but, and that they would take a king, but he warned them. If you have excessive layers of government, there's a warning. The more government you have, the more difficulty that you're going to have in your life. Right? So that's what the warning was. I'm summarizing. But he said, if you want to have a king, they're going to take the best of your crops. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. So here, here's, here's, here's what I'm driving at. The Old Testament moral law, we can easily see how Jesus fulfills. But then we look at the religious law, right, the ceremonial law. All of that was driving towards what? Towards Jesus. He was that lamb, and so they, they would sacrifice the lamb. He was, he was the payment for sin. He was like all of that imagery was, was, doing, was teaching about God. And Jesus fulfills that. But then we get to the civil and we say, well, what was that about? All of that was pointing towards what? Pointing towards, does Jesus fulfill the civil law? Yes, because he's the only good king that can rule perfectly over people and not break household unity. He actually increases household unity. And that's what, what Paul is saying here. Um, we know that the law is good, we use it, we use it lawfully. Now it's for it's for those that that are law breakers. But what the gospel does is actually makes households the pillar and buttress of truth, the church of the living God in the world. Like what Paul says in chapter three is like the church is showing people how to do it, and how we do it, we live in this harmony between law and gospel. So so I would say this that that the the moral law is for today but the ceremonial law is also for today in a different way and, and the civil law is also for today if you look at the bible and you look at what christ did he was always going back and he was saying look the old testament points to this the old testament talks about this this is important look at this here we have a problem in 1 Timothy, and what are they doing? They're adding to the text. They're going back, and they're saying, they're saying well, hey, we've got this, and it, they're misusing the text. Potential, they're adding to the text. Where Jesus said, no, it's good, it's all good. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time, but I, I, want, to, I want to give you two case studies here. Okay, so we can see, this is why, why I talked about the, the moral law. We can see how the moral law fits, how the moral law continues. We understand that we're not under the law, but yet the law is still good for today. But what about, um, what about the civil and the ceremonial? We tend to misuse the Old Testament by disregarding these things and saying, well, that was for the past. That's essentially, we say, well, that's really not good for today. That was for another time and another place. But Paul's not saying that. He's, he's appealing um, to this. So, so we, we could say, well, there's certain things that are, that are said in the, in the New Testament, and we need to live by those. But certain things in the Old Testament are not repeated. And some people would misuse the Bible by saying, well, because we're not under the law, then if it's not repeated in the New Testament, then we really are not obligated to that. So are we to believe that laws regarding things like incest apply to the New Testament, but laws against sex with animals, abortion, kidnapping, arson, cursing the deaf, or tripping blind people do not apply? Because they're not repeated in the New Testament? You go out and trip a blind person say, that's okay? Because, well, it's not repeated in the New Testament. No, that's ridiculous. We would, that would be mishandling, misusing. You know, how about um, the just weights and measures me- mentioned in um, Leviticus uh, 19, 35, and 36, and Deuteronomy 25? It, the law is repeated in Proverbs 11 and, and Proverbs 20. But it's not mentioned in the New Testament. I suppose that we could say it's under the commandment not to steal, the Eighth Commandment. Uh, But why mention these specific laws in the Old Testament if they're not reasonably uh, covered um, by the Eighth Commandment or particularly mentioned in the New Testament? Paul freely uses the Old Covenant law in the New Testament. He's constantly applying that. He applies the law about the mistreatment of animals from Deuteronomy 25. The laborer is worthy of his wages in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Um, There's there's all kinds of of things. He he broadens and applies, um, stating in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that um, the law was written for our sake. Um, He makes similar applications in the Old Testament about animals being yoked, together for work, Deuteronomy 22.10, um, with believers and unbelievers being bound together, being unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So there, there is nothing about the passing away of the moral application of the law to individuals and society at large. In fact, the law in and of itself in Deuteronomy chapter 4 says it's for all nations. And I would say that applies moral, civil, and ceremonial. It's for all nations. It is good in accordance to the gospel. So, how do we do that? This, how do we, um, how do we look at this today? So, some people would say, "Hey, wait a minute. There's a law. There's a crazy law um, about um, not wearing mixed fabrics. So, I might have wool and linen mixed together." Deuteronomy twenty-two. 11. what is with that can we apply the ceremonial law that's in deuteronomy chapter 22 and leviticus 19 19 you shall you shall not wear garments made of two kinds of material can we apply that today absolutely it applies it applies today because you got to go back and you got to say what was that for it absolutely applies. So, so in that law, the, that ceremonial law, the congregation was to have, like, let's say, 100% cotton t shirts, right? So, your t shirts had to be 100% cotton. That was the law. No mixed cloth. But if you study the New Testament, the priest's garments, what were they made of? They were made of mixed clothing, right? There was, there was a delineation between the congregation and those that were the mediatorial representative of God that held that office, there there was this separation. But when Jesus comes, is there that separation in the New Testament? No. In fact, what does the New Testament call us? A kingdom of priests, right? Right? We we are a royal priesthood. We're a holy family together. Right. So we all become part of this priesthood. Now in the Old Testament, there's a holiness principle. Um, in, In the Old Testament, there was a rebellion. It's called Korah's Rebellion. It's when the people took on what God said is reserved for priests only. There was this separation between the those that functioned as priest and the laity. But when Jesus comes, there is access to the Father through Christ. So does that ceremonial law pass away? Well, it passes away in its in its stark application of hundred percent cotton T-shirts. We're not going to check the uh, tags as you come in. Like you got it. Let me say. Let me see what you got. You know, do you have? But in the application of it, what what he was saying is, to come to God, you have to be holy. And you know what? Those people wore that understanding with them every day. Listen, that still applies. Do you understand that you wear your holiness? In fact, the New Testament talks about Stained and unstained garments. It talks about, it uses this same kind of language. Has it gone away? Well, in its stark application, yes. But is it still useful? Absolutely. My, my, time, is, my time is slipping away here. So ceremonial, if we actually go back and we look at the ceremonial laws, um, they have a practical purpose And they have a purpose in our spiritual life today. But civil laws as well. Civil laws. Old Testament civil laws express moral absolutes about which God has had no change of mind. So when you look at Israel and how God said, here's how you're to live, and he created civil laws. Many theologians and pastors um, find the Old Testament civil laws outlandish, unworkable, and an embarrassment. And so they argue that they have been abrogated, they're over with in the New Testament. Um, but they're not. They they continue. If God's moral law continues, then his order for society continues. And 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 this this is where um here here's where here's where we're we're driving at here. Okay, so let me get let me kind of get to almost the point four in how you should how you should vote. So the little clue here. When when people wonder about government, oftentimes they're looking at external sources saying, How do we govern and how should our nation live? Well, you know, I read this here and I'm listening to this blog and I'm reading this post and I'm being informed by, but no, what, where do we go? We actually go to the Old Testament because God's moral absolutes for civil government across the world have not changed. So you take the issue of of slavery. The Bible clearly outlaws chattel slavery, man stealing. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. But then it has regulations for the poor of bonded service. It's referred to as slavery in the Bible, but that is regulated. And it's regulated very particularly um, killing a slave, killing one who is bonded in service. So an individual um, may be destitute. They don't have any way to feed themselves or their family. There wasn't credit cards. So what did you have? You had sweat equity. And so you would go to someone and you would, be, you would become part of their household, um, mostly agrarian society, and you would work for them. And so the law, the civil law, regulated those relationships. So killing a slave merited punishment. Permanently injuring someone who was a, a bonded ser- servant or a, a servant, they, they had to be set free. If you injured someone who was working for you so that they... Uh, they were either putting back savings or they were paying off a debt or they were they were subsisting by their their labor and they were injured. You had to set them free. Slaves who ran away from oppressive masters were freed. they, were, they went free by God's law. they were free if they were oppressed. The law also gave everyone in the household a day of rest every single week. Um, Hebrew slaves, Um, of fellow um, Hebrews could become, Jewish people could become slaves of fellow Jewish people if they committed a crime such as theft and have no other way of repaying a a fine Um, or if they became impoverished or sold themselves and their family into slavery. Um, But it's really clear, very clear in, in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that kidnapping someone or selling them into slavery was absolutely forbidden. You can read Deuteronomy 24. So the kind of slavery that we had in America was absolutely forbidden by the Bible. When a Hebrew owned another Hebrew slave, the law commanded lenient treatment. Um, They were to be hired on as workers, according to Leviticus 25. They were to be freed after six years. And when you freed them, According to God's good law, they were to be liberally supplied with what they needed to live and continue living. In other words, you couldn't turn them out with nothing. Actually, what the Bible gives is instructions so that they could live for a particular time to sustain themselves. Every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all those who were indebted were freed. Even those who were owned by foreigners or those who were, who were foreigners who were, who were indebted. In working as bonded servants. Uh, There's there's a lot more that that we could say um, about this, but I want I want to draw one particular conclusion um, in this, or one correlation in this um, that relates to to modern life. Um, Here, what we see in the issue in in scripture, it was economic regulation, it was a regulation of, of economy when it came to, to whether or not you were going to place yourself in the service of another person. So it was, it was regulating an economic relationship. That's really, that's so important to understand when reading this um, in scripture. It regulated economics. Um, there are, um, when it comes to um, this regulation of economics, there's also penalties in scripture. So penalties, so the, here it says that the law is good for those who break the law. Right? So in the scriptures, you had, if somebody did this and they broke the law, they would actually, that individual would actually have to, to give, retro, they would have to repay um, for what they broke, stole. Um, that individual would have to do that. Um, there was restitution that was tied um, to the individual you'll also see in in the the old testament law you will see the that that there were these penalties Um, oftentimes there was the maximum penalty which was death and there's there's a reason for that um when when understanding the old testament law um, it doesn't mean that well you'll read this law and it says someone who speaks bad against their mother and father that um, they could be put to death. It doesn't mean that if somebody said, oh man, I don't like my dad. It was rather regulating the maximum penalty for this to happen. Like that was the maximum penalty. So there's, there's, There are these things that we have to be careful when we look at the scriptures that we don't misuse the scripture. But also in the, in the Old Testament, these kinds of things like um, the death penalty, um, there's, a, there's a principle there. and I, I don't want us to miss this. This, this idea um, of restitution and this idea of when someone is beyond a shadow of doubt, they've committed this crime and they are detriment to society and they are a repeat offender. and So, so like the child thing, you didn't have you know, six-year-old children who were, who were hitting their parents or cursing their parents put to death in the Old Testament. That just didn't happen. Um, but you did have older adults who were not taking care of their older parents and they were not honoring them. And so these, in, the, in the, that agrarian society, and that who, you know, they, there's children just like um, individuals would put children out to die if they didn't want them. There were children who would put their parents out to die If they didn't want to take care of them because they were an economic burden, it was a violation of the civil law. It was also a violation of the moral law that carried a maximum penalty of death. That makes sense. So we have to be careful that we don't misuse the Old Testament law. But there's some connections that I want you to see. Restitution was tied to the individual. There was also this, when we see the old, read the Old Testament law and we see this death penalty, there's a ceremonial purpose for the death penalty. Why? Because of the holiness of God. There, God, is, God is holy. And, and so there's this, this, there are these things that, that tie in. So I want you to think about one, one thing here. Um, we have penalties for crimes in our society. You... You do something. What's the most common penalty? You go to jail. Now, this you can you can look at this and you can agree or disagree, or agree or disagree to on a on a spectrum. But what do we do with people in in jail? What happens if somebody does something? They commit a crime. We have separated restitution from the individual, and we have a penal system that creates slaves. That, that's what we have in America. It doesn't line up with the scriptures. I, I want you to think about that. It, it doesn't, it, it, when you read the Old Testament, when I mean, you think about, you have a dog that doesn't behave very well, and you put it in a cage, and you put it in a cage for 24 hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You let it out only a little bit. like. That's how we treat those that have, um, that have committed crimes. Now, the answer is, okay, h- what do we do, right? That's the next, how do we handle that? That's a big question, and I don't have the answer for that. It's a big question. But when you look at, that's what we say, like, are we doing things perfectly? No, but do we need to look at the Bible and what the Bible says? God's law is good, and it addresses these things of lawbreakers, and it gives guidance in order how to do that. It gives wisdom. It gives wisdom. So I bring that up because it leads us into point four. It, bring, it makes us think and say, are we doing the right things with criminals? Right? Separating them from society is not a bad thing. I wouldn't say that is bad. But are we doing the right thing? According to God's good law and is in accordance with the gospel. It's a good question to ask. So, fourth, how does this get to voting? How to vote in this election? Right? Here we go from false teachers to politics. Yes, I hope you see the connection. Because here's the answer to this. I I hope you I hope you see the connection. Because the word of God tells us what? How to live as a household of faith. The pillar and buttress of truth in the world. So Christians ought to know how to live not just religiously and live like everybody else in the secular world, outside of their religion, but the two connect together. The two connect together. How do you vote in this election here? I, here's what I, I believe, is that if you're struggling, with these kinds of things, you don't need something in addition to God's word to discern who to vote for. What you need is you need to read God's word. You need to take the political platforms and you need to say, okay, how are people gonna handle criminal law? How are they going to handle economics? What is God's good law? In other words, these principles that are based on the Old Testament law, they don't pass away, right? How God instructs Israel to live pointing towards Christ still applies today. And we need Christians to understand that. We need Christians to stop voting because this candidate makes them feel one way or another. Don't vote by your feelings, we're too informed by things that are external to God's word. And I'm not saying that you have to proof text. Well, I have a proof text for, you know, the, the sewer commissioner right here. You know, I found this verse and this is why. No, but you ought to know what the drain commissioner, you know. And, and here's, here's, you ought to know these things. And it's based on the New Testament gives us some instructions, but it doesn't give us all the instructions. Why? It doesn't need to because we already have God's word in the Old Testament. We already have God's word as to how nations should live and govern and behave and how citizens ought to think about God's good law. It's good, it's good, it, it, it still is good. Moral, civil, and ceremonial, it still applies. And so let me encourage you, there's, there's hope here. Even as there, was, there, were, there were these false teachers that were coming into the church and they were saying, hey, you, know, you need to live by this over here, and then they were misusing God's word over here, and we need to fend that off. This, this idea of politics is not out of the realm of the church. Actually, it's inside the church. And so let me, let me just say this, if you're wondering who to vote for, Talked with one of the elders. Now, you're going to have to do the work. Don't say, hey, who, which candidate should I vote for? We're not going to give you that answer. But if you come and you say, hey, I've researched the platform, and here's this platform of this person, and this is what this person, which one lines up? We'll walk you through, and we'll talk. If you don't know where to look in the Bible and the Scriptures to address the particular issues that a particular individual who's governing um, addresses, We will walk you through and help you with that. We will not tell you who to vote for, but we will tell you what the Bible says. We will instruct you in God's good word, Old Testament and New Testament, rightly handling the word of truth. It will give you the answers you need. You don't need anything outside of scripture. When you go to vote, you ought to be able to vote in good conscience. And by that, I don't mean that you feel good or have a good conscience about the person that you're pulling the lever for. You don't have to feel that way. What you have to, where, where you need to feel is that you've gone to God's word and you understand based on God's word what you're doing. And always know that you live in a broken and fallen world. But what does the word of God point towards? Here's our hope. Here's the gospel, right? This is what he says at the end. In accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You have been entrusted with this good and glorious gospel. And Paul is giving instructions to Timothy to give instructions to the church on how they ought to live it out in every area of life. Church life, your walk with God as an individual in your household, How to live as a citizen a citizen of heaven and a citizen here on earth it's all here in the word of god that's a blessing that's what he's saying it's trustworthy it's true and as the church right we have this moment in history that we get to say we're the church of the living god and we know the truth of god and we can we have confidence why because God gives us direction in a broken world and our hope is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we so cherish the fact that you have given us direction. Um, we are not left to hearsay, to social media, to the, to, to, and to the newspaper, to the, the evening news. We, um, we know how to navigate. And our confidence is in you. And so, Lord, guide us. Help us to be like the Bereans who dug into the word of God, who had questions, and they went to God's word. And, Lord, we ask that your spirit would teach us, that that your spirit would illumine us, um, and that you would work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, make your church church. Make your church that stalwart of of truth. May we be alive and active and unapologetic. And our aim is the same as Paul here says in Scripture, that the aim comes from a heart of love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to give you just a few moments at this time to... Um, to go to the, the church app um, or to www.northbridge.me and just to be able to think about, okay, w- what am I, gonna um, am I going to do with this? Where am I going to take um, the word of God today? So I would ask if you would just take out your phones and just spend a few moments before we respond um, through the table of communion, the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Um, and Maybe that's to say thank you. Thank you, God, for your good direction. Um, Maybe it's to spend some time in in praying and saying, you know, I've got some work to do. Um, You know, there's there's some that are out there that have been, you've been apathetic in your approach to the issues that, that are at stake. Maybe you have... Um, Maybe you have responded with your feelings to to many of the things Maybe you're leaning on things that are external to god's word I I don't know what the spirit of god is working on and doing in your heart That's up to you and god and i'm going to trust god for that But i'm going to trust that his word in these next few moments will work in your heart and your life and those of you that are that are at home I I would trust that you take just a few moments as well um, To respond to the the word of god just go to that connection card Fill that connection card out very prayerfully and and consider what what God would have you to do. And if you need help, if you need instruction, we're happy to give you not our opinion, um, but we're happy to open God's word and to guide you in the truth of God's word. And just, just ask for that using that connection card, and we would be glad to help you take those next steps.